Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us and send the Holy Spirit to us now so that we would love your commands and therefore we would delight in them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we, I was going to say, continue our series in the book of 1 Samuel, but we finished 1 Samuel last time I preached and we're doing 2 Samuel chapter 1 and... Lord willing, we'll actually stop after chapter 1, and uh, next time I preach, we'll probably be in Matthew's Gospel, Uh, we'll take a break from Samuel, but I couldn't finish 1 Samuel chapter 31 and then take the break there um, with the death of the uh, King Saul. I felt that we had to see David's reaction uh, before we would then see David's ascent to the throne when we return to this series, I I don't know when, uh, but we will see how David uh, begins to be the king of Israel uh, without Saul also uh, reigning at that time. And so this morning we were going to see David's reaction to the death of King Saul. Now, if you are not familiar with Israelite history and where this all fits in, uh, I can give you a quick overview. Uh, Of course, the Bible starts with Adam and Eve. They're created by God as the first parents. From them you get Abraham. From Abraham you get, as his great-grandchildren, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the 12 sons of Israel. And then you, from, they all end up in the land of Egypt. Uh, they're led out of Egypt by Moses. They're brought into the promised land by Joshua. They have a series of judges who look after them uh, while they're in the promised land. And the last of those is the prophet Samuel. Uh, Samuel anoints Saul as king over Israel. Uh, Saul turns out to be someone who is not faithful to the Lord's commands and so therefore the Lord turns away from him and his house and turns to David and David is anointed uh, king over Israel as well and so you've got this conflict that's going on between Saul and David as these people who've been anointed as king uh, by the Lord and last time we looked at Saul and the war that was raging between Israel and the Philistines and how Saul ended up dying in that battle. He was wounded critically and then fell on his own sword. Meanwhile, David hasn't actually been part of the battle between Israel and the Philistines. He has fled and uh, has been living in the Philistine territory and while he was there, uh, his town was taken over by some Amalekites and he's been off fighting the Amalekites uh, whilst the battle's been raging between Israel and the Philistines. So he's not even a part of the battle that's going on and that's where we pick up the narrative in 2 Samuel chapter 1 where he is in his town in Ziklag which is part of the Philistine territory and he gets news that the war has been a success for the Philistines in defeating Israel and particularly Saul and Jonathan, Saul being the king and his son Jonathan uh, being the prince who would have uh, ascended to the throne uh, after Saul. Uh, He is uh, found out to be dead by this Amalekite who comes to David. And so what would David's reaction be to this? What do we see David's reaction is in verse 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 1. We read in verse 11, Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. What is David's reaction? Well, it's one of mourning and weeping with all his men. They are ones who mourn at the loss of the battle, the loss of the Israelites and the loss of Saul and his son Jonathan. And what else does David do? Well, he mourns and he also composes a lament. 
He composes this lament and teaches his men to sing it. We see that in verse 17. Verse 17 of 2 Samuel chapter 1, we read, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. And it's written in the book of Jasher. So uh, David is one who mourns and teaches this lament of mourning uh, to his men and sings it himself. And what does David say about Saul in this lament? We have the lament recorded for us in the book of 2 Samuel. We do not have the book of Jeshur, uh, but we have the book of 2 Samuel, and here we have a record of this lament. And what does David say about Saul? How does he describe Saul? Well, he speaks about Saul as one who is glorious or beautiful, Uh, We see that in verse 19. He says, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. The word translated there from the Hebrew can also be translated as beautiful. Uh, He is saying that Saul was one of glory, one of beauty, and he was also mighty. And we see that in verse 19 as well. How does he describe Saul? He says, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. He saw Saul as one who was beautiful, glorious, and mighty. Now, why? Was Saul described by David as one who is beautiful, glorious, and mighty? Well, he gives us some reasons over in verse 23. Look with me at verse 23 of 2 Samuel chapter 1. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Why is Saul one who is glorious, who is mighty, Well, it's because he is one who is loving and gracious. He was loved and he was gracious himself, we see there in verse 23. And he is also one who is powerful. We read in verse 23 that he he was swifter than an eagle, he was stronger than a lion. And we also understand in verse 24 that he was someone who enriched Israel. He is described as the glory of Israel. How did Saul show his glory? Well, he enriched Israel. We read that in verse 24. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. Now, is it true that Saul was the glory of Israel, that he was a mighty one, Haven't I been telling you, as we've been going through 1 Samuel together, that Saul is an awful king. He's a horrible person. He is a murderous person. He has not been faithful to the Lord's commands. And now David is saying that he is the glory of Israel. He is a mighty one. He is loving and gracious. He is swift and powerful. Is it true? Well, yes, he was a horrible person, but yes, he was someone who was loving and gracious and powerful and enriched Israel. I mean, you look back at the beginning of his reign. What was the first thing that Saul did that really helped him get to the throne? It was when he defended the town of Jabesh-Gilead. You have to think right back to uh, halfway through 1 Samuel, and this was a time before our previous series. We've been in Samuel a number of times and come back to it. But in 1 Samuel, we see that with the beginning of his reign, that this town was taken over, Jabesh-Gilead, well, it was under siege, and Nahash, the Ammonite, has said, I will let you live, I'll let you become my slaves if every man in the town has to gouge out his right eye. That's my terms and conditions. And Saul was outraged, and so he raised an army and went and delivered Jabesh-Gilead. He was swift, he was powerful. He rallied the men of Israel to come and save Jabesh-Gilead. 
And therefore, he was one who enriched Israel. He fought against the Philistines successfully. He fought against the Amalekites successfully. He didn't keep the command of the Lord to to destroy them completely, but he was successful. And so there was a song that was written about him. Saul has slain his thousands. He didn't like the part about David slaying his tens of thousands, but nevertheless, Saul was successful. He was swift as an eagle. He was powerful as a lion. And he did enrich Israel. He brought stability to Israel. If you look at the book of Judges, there's great instability in the time of the Judges. But in 1 Samuel, there is a sense of stability. People are still surrounding Saul with allegiance. And so he did enrich Israel in the way that we can see that the daughters of Israel were clothed in scarlet and finery and their garments were adorned with ornaments of gold. Scarlet being... uh, Uh, a type of uh, colouring that was highly valued. It was meant that you were wealthy if you had uh, scarlet clothes. And so Saul is worthy of lamenting. He was one who did indeed bring blessing to Israel. And of course, at the bare minimum, he is worthy of lamenting because he was the Lord's anointed. We see again and again that David has this great respect, and we even see it in this chapter, he has this great respect for someone who is anointed of the Lord. He was God's chosen king, and therefore he is worthy of being called the glory of Israel. So what can we learn this morning as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 1 together? What lessons are there for us? Well, one lesson that we can learn from this is the importance of loving even our enemies. God commands us to love our enemies, and we read that in uh, very clearly in like Romans chapter 12, verse 14, it says, bless those who persecute you. And of course, the Lord Jesus himself tells us to love our enemies. And what does that mean? Well, it means mourning, even our enemy's death. We should be ones who are able to mourn even those who were against us while they were alive. Why should we do that? What can we mourn about an enemy? Well, there is a sense that every human being is glorious and mighty. How is that possible? Well, like David did for Saul, we can mourn the loss of love and power and an enriching of society as that person lived on this earth. Even the most awful of people are known for some love and for having some power and for enriching society in some way. They may have been horrible to you, but they probably contributed to society in an enriching way in some way by being faithful at least in their job. They may not have been loving to their neighbours, they may not have been loving to much of the community, but they're still nevertheless loving to their own family in their own special way. And so there is a place where we can mourn even our enemy, because we recognise that there was a graciousness and there was a power and there was an enriching in society of having that person around. And even even if we're really pushed and we really struggle to see how we should mourn someone who we consider to be a real rotter, in this world. We still should be able to mourn the loss of someone who is made in the image of God. Someone who is made in the image of God. Why? Because if someone is made in the image of God, they are a a representation of God here on on this earth, of God's love and his power and the fact that they have enriched society simply by existing as someone made in God's image. Even the worst of humans, even the most Uh, horrible of people, if they are made in God's image, which the Bible tells us that they are, they are adorning creation with a representation of God and who he is of grace and power. And so they are worthy of mourning. 
So that's one thing that we could take away from 2 Samuel chapter 1, is the way that we should be willing to mourn even the most horrible of people. But what's a better lesson that we can learn from this chapter? Something particularly powerful that we can take away. Well, if we should mourn even the most horrible people who we have known, how much more should we mourn the death of Jesus Christ? Why? Because Jesus is truly the glory of Israel. Jesus is truly the mighty one of all. How so? Well, Jesus is the perfect image of God. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we read that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. If you want to see someone who is glorious, if you want to see someone who is mighty, then you look at Jesus Christ, the exact representation of God's being. And why else should we mourn Jesus as a glorious and mighty one? Well, He's the Lord's anointed. He is the Messiah. That's what the word Messiah means, an anointed one. And so, in one sense, that uh, we can say that Saul and David were messiahs, but they're not the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed. The Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 10 that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit in a way that no man has ever been anointed before. And so therefore, he is the glory of Israel. He is the mighty one. And he is worthy of our mourning when we hear of his death. And he's also then the king of Israel, isn't he? He is the king of Israel, the king of Israel. Really? You say? Yes. Why? Because he's a descendant of David. He is in a long line of descendants of David, and David was the true king of Israel. You may say, but didn't he usurp Saul's throne? Wasn't Saul and his family the family of Benjamin, not the family of Judah? Aren't they the real kings of Israel? Isn't it, shouldn't be one of Saul's descendants that's on the throne, and therefore Jesus shouldn't be on the throne? No, we recognize that David's reign is legitimate reign. We recognize that, and that's what 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are really keen to impress upon us, is that David and his line are the true princes, and then, of course, Jesus as the king of Israel. How do we see this even in this chapter before us? Well, we see that David did not kill Saul. He wasn't even at the battle. He was back at Ziglag, and he found out the news. He did not usurp the throne. A usurper does everything he can to kill the person who is on the throne. And David even put to death the Amalekite who claimed that he had put Saul to death. A usurper, what would you expect a usurper to do when he finds out that someone has, has killed the king and he wants that throne? You'd expect him to reward the person who murdered the king. But instead, we see him putting him to death. And what would you expect a usurper to do when he hears of the death? You'd expect him to rejoice. But what do we see David doing? We see him mourning, composing a lament, and getting others to lament the death of the king. And so, once again, we see that David is the legitimate king. He did not usurp the throne. God put him on that throne. And if we return to this book in the future, we will see how God put David upon the throne of Israel. And so therefore, if David is the legitimate king, then Jesus is the legitimate king as one of David's descendants. And therefore, he is worthy of our mourning as we see him die. 
in the New Testament at the cross. But you may say, but was Jesus loving and gracious and so worthy of mourning? Remember when we look at Saul here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see that he's described as the glorious one, the mighty one. And then it is articulated why he is the glorious and mighty one. He is loved, it says in verse 23, and gracious. And he is powerful. Was Jesus loving and gracious and so worthy of mourning? Yes, he always was. He was never unkind. We see it in the New Testament. As you read the Gospels, you see how the Lord Jesus is not like King Saul at all. King Saul, of course, knew some love and some grace in his life, but Jesus continuously showed love and grace. You see it in his speech and in his action, and particularly to the weak and to the suffering, those who are lame, those who are blind. He has this concern for them and heals them and has kind and gracious words to speak to people. But was Jesus powerful? We saw Saul was known to be powerful. He was swifter than an eagle and stronger than a lion. Was Jesus swifter than an eagle and stronger than a lion? Yes. We see Christ's power in his miracles, his healings, but also calming a storm, walking on water, multiplying food to feed 5,000 people. And you see his power in his speech. He's very quick and fearless in debate, swifter than an eagle. And the way that he speaks, the response, he has the most powerful of opponents. They recruit the most experts that they've got in different factions within Judaism, and they come and they try to test him and try to fault him. He's swift in his responses and powerful in his responses. There's no argument that people can raise against him that he hasn't got a counter-argument that overrules it. Jesus is powerful. What else did we see about Saul that was worthy of mourning? Well, he enriched Israel. Did Jesus enrich Israel? Well, not in the way that Saul did, by plundering enemies so that the children of Israel, the daughters of Israel would be clothed in scarlet. But Jesus did enrich Israel. He healed the chronically ill. And if you're healed from an illness, like blindness or being lame, paralysis, what does that mean? You no longer have to beg. You can actually go and work. And prosperity will come as a result. And definitely, Jesus enriched people spiritually with his teaching. People love to hear Christ. And, and those principles that Christ taught of love and truth and honesty and hard work, living for righteousness, those principles do lead to prosperity. You see nations that have been built upon this desire to be honest in our transactions economically with one another. What happens? Prosperity builds from that. Nations that are not built on the Judeo-Christian principles that we find in the Old Testament and that Jesus encouraged and taught, they do not prosper in the same way. We as Western nations have much to be grateful for, for the teachings of Christ that were taken up by people and they started to live them out. Their yes was yes and their no was no. If you start living like that, if a whole nation starts living like that, my yes is yes and my no is no, what happens? People are clothed in scarlet. Their children have ornaments of gold upon them. So Jesus did enrich Israel. And so if David can cry, how the mighty have fallen for someone who is as rotten as Saul was. And if we should mourn our enemies and cry how the mighty have fallen, how much more should all humans cry for Christ? How the mighty have fallen 
when they hear of his death. But does anyone mourn the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, many did. We saw that in Mark's Gospel that was read for us before, Mark chapter 15. In Luke chapter 23, verse 48, we also read, when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight, to witness the death of the Lord Jesus, when they gathered to witness this sight and saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. People mourned that day to see someone who was kind and loving and powerful in speech and action, someone who enriched others, They saw his death and they beat their breasts and went away. But do people mourn Christ's death today? The answer is yes. Many have mourned the death of Christ when they hear of it, when they read of it in the pages of the New Testament. I remember as an early teenage boy reading John's Gospel. Probably this is one of the moments where I was particularly touched by God and Probably when I was converted, it's hard to know when you grow up in a Christian family when you were exactly converted. But I remember reading John's Gospel, John chapter 19, and being deeply moved at reading of this kind man who only had good for others to be treated so badly, to be crucified. I remember being moved to tears over the account in John chapter 19 of the death of the Lord Jesus. And many people through history have been moved similarly as they read of the Lord Jesus and his death. But do all mourn? Do all of humanity, all of all humans, do they mourn? Yes, it has to be no. Is that surprising? Well, yes, it should be. Why? Because people will mourn over rotten souls. People who did horrible things but not mourn for Christ, the most gracious and powerful person ever to walk this earth. Have you ever mourned over the death of Jesus? Can you be a Christian if you haven't? I don't want to project my experience onto you, but there should be a mourning in the heart of every Christian, shouldn't there? I'm very careful about saying that just because someone comes to the Lord this way that everybody has to feel the same experience. But shouldn't there be a mourning over the death of Christ if you are a Christian? If your grandfather died, can you claim that you loved him if you don't mourn over his death? If there's not a grieving in your heart for someone that you loved? So wouldn't it be then ludicrous to claim that you love Jesus, you're a follower of Christ, and you have no concern that he died, that he was treated that way by human beings? on this earth, and particularly such a horrible death, the humiliation before it, the spitting, the flogging, and then the crucifixion itself. Can you be someone who claims to love Christ and have never mourned over such a horrible death? But is that then what it means to be a Christian, to be continually mourning the death of a man? Many think so. They study crucifixes with statues of Christ on it, and study them and work up glum thoughts in their minds about the Lord Jesus and his death and may even hurt themselves, self-flagellating, whipping themselves, causing pain to their own bodies so they can understand the the pain that the Lord Jesus went through. Sounds horrible then to be a Christian, doesn't it? If this is what it means to be a Christian, that we're continuously mourning the death of this man 2,000 years ago. But true Christians, 
do not end at the cross. We're not perpetual mourners. Why? Because unlike King Saul, King Jesus was raised to life. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. Why? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. Christ arose. Jesus is like Saul as king of Israel in some ways. Gracious, but exceedingly so. Mighty, but exceedingly so. Enriching Israel, but even exceedingly so. But very unlike Saul. Why? Because he didn't stay dead, he arose. And so we cry, oh, how the mighty have fallen in reference to Jesus Christ. But what else do we cry? Oh, how the mighty have risen. They have fallen, yes, he fell. But he also arose. And so we rejoice. And we make much of him. Why? Because the risen Christ is even more glorious and even more mighty than before. Why, why do I say that? Well, he is more loving and more gracious and swifter and stronger and enriching his people like never before. How so? Well, he's raised with a body that will never die again. And in a twinkling of an eye, he will come and make a new heavens and a new earth. And he has been raised to give healing to his people for eternity, not temporarily. While he was on earth, yes, he did enrich God's people. He gave great healing and helped people. But soon he will come and he will help people for all of eternity, giving them resurrection bodies that will never die in a place without any evil, sickness, pain or death. Now, how is this all possible? Well, Christ achieved something wonderful by his death. What was that? Well, at the cross, Jesus died the death that his people deserve for their sins. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus die for believers? Because Jesus is like David. He's like Saul, but he's also like David. How? He loved his enemies. He loved his enemies. David loved Saul despite Saul's murderous attacks against him. It's incredible to see David's love here in his lamenting for Saul despite the murderous attacks. Now, how did Jesus love his enemies? Jesus loved us despite our murderous intentions towards him. You may say, oh, but I've never tried to murder Jesus. Yes, we all have. When? Every time we sin, we are trying to take Christ off his throne. We have murderous intent, and we are trying to rule our lives as king. And what do we deserve? Well, we deserve death and eternal punishment for our attempted murder. So how did Jesus then love us as his enemies? Well, like David, he mourned over us. He mourned our death and punishment Many of the Psalms you can take as Christ's words as he laments over the pain of his people. He mourned our death and our punishment. And did what? Did he compose a lament and teach others to sing it? Well, yes, if you look at the Psalms, if you look at the, look at the book of Lamentations and say, take that as Jesus' words, yes. But he did more than compose a lament like David did and taught his men to sing it. What did Jesus do? 
He took our place so that we wouldn't be punished for our sins. And so what happened at the cross? All Christ's Jonathans, his sons, died with him by faith. If we trust in Christ Jesus, we died at the cross with Jesus. But what happened three days later? Christ rose. And what does that mean? All Christ's Jonathans, they rise too. They rise with him by faith. And they live with him now. And will rise with perfect resurrection bodies. And live with him for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Richly clothed in those bodies. Richly clothed in heaven itself. Clothed in his righteousness even. For eternity. So what is a Christian? Well a Christian is one who mourns the death of a glorious and mighty king. Yes. What else is a Christian? One who mourns the death of a mighty and glorious king for him. That's what I did when I was studying John 19. I recognised years ago as a little boy that Christ died for me and I was moved. Not just that Christ died, but that he was suffering those things that I read about in John 19 For me. That's what a Christian is. Someone who understands that Christ died and mourns, but also mourns that he died for me. But what also is a Christian? Not just one who mourns the death of the king. Not just one who mourns the death of the king for him, but the one who rejoices in the resurrection of a glorious and mighty king. And what else is a Christian? One who mourns the death of the king, mourns the death of the king for him, rejoices that the king has risen, not just that the king has fallen, but that the king has risen, but also rejoices that by the Holy Spirit's power, he has risen with the king. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. That's all of us in Christ, with Christ. But also, oh, how the mighty have risen, which is all those who trust in Christ Jesus. And so we rejoice. So what about you? Have you mourned over the death of Christ? Have you mourned that the most glorious and mighty king who ever lived was put to death? And more than that, have you mourned that he was put to death for your sin? Have you mournfully sung of the Lord Jesus' death? Like that hymn that we're about to sing, written by by Watts so many years ago. In your bulletins there, you can see it. Verse 1 of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, our third hymn this morning. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Have you mournfully sung this, recognising the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died? Have you? But have you also rejoiced in the resurrection of Christ? Have you rejoiced that the mighty have fallen, but also that the mighty have risen? And then have you also rejoiced that you are part of that mighty who have risen, and that you will be raised with Christ, richly clothed for eternity? Have you sung the fourth hymn that we'll sing this morning, with joy in your hearts? Look with me at verse 1 of Low in the Grave He Lay. 
Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Saviour, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose, with a mighty triumph o'er oh, his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Have you sung that with joy in your heart? There's no such thing as a perpetually glum Christian. Yes, we sorrow, and we should sorrow over Christ's death. But we also rejoice. We rejoice. We do not lament like David lamented over Saul. We lament, yes, over Jesus. But we rejoice. David doesn't end in rejoicing, but we do. Why? Because Christ arose. God loved enemies. His enemies. Wretches like us. Sinners, people who have had murderous intent against him and continue every time we sin. But he loved us and gave us eternal life, enriching us for eternity. And if you've never trusted in Christ's death for you, do it now. Do it now. Mourn the death of Christ and then rejoice in the resurrection of Christ that is his and yours and look forward to eternity with him. Let's come to him in prayer now. Let's speak with him. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the true glory of Israel. You are the mighty one. We ask that you would forgive us for not mourning your death as we should and for not crying, oh, how the mighty have fallen as we should. But Lord, we thank you that many of us have mourned and we have died with you by faith but we've also been raised with you by faith and have rejoiced ever since, crying, oh, how the mighty have risen. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to continue to grieve and to rejoice because you have loved us and will love us for eternity. And, Lord, if there is anyone here who does not believe, who has not trusted in you, oh, Lord, we pray that you would grant them faith by your Spirit now so they may mourn and rejoice in you today. And we pray this in your name. Amen.